Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Fulcher Riv Akhtavriyaganaheran. Uh, you're very welcome uh, today to our lecture, which is uh, by Dr. Richard Sharp, Professor of Diplomatic at Oxford, who is going to speak to us about Rory O'Flaherty through his letters, a learned Gaelic chief and his Oxford friend in 1700. And this lecture is accompanying the uh, book which uh, was launched yesterday evening by the Minister for Education and Skills on uh, Rory O'Flaherty's letters to the two Molyneux, uh, William and Samuel, and especially to Edward Tluid. Um, all of this is also the subject of an exhibition here, which we've mounted um, in cooperation with uh, Richard and the publications uh, department here in the Academy. And we hope that you'll take some time after the lecture to have a look at the exhibition. Um, it'll run until the 21st of June as well, so please tell your friends. Um, just to say as well that um, this lecture will, will run for about 30 minutes. There'll be a little time for questions and the speaker must go then at a quarter to two because there's another important commitment which he has to meet. Um, I'd also just like to preempt the next exhibition, uh, which is just a date for your diaries. It's a start on the 1st of July and run for, six, for five months. Um, it will be called Ein Avrk Er Eiren, Gaelic Families and Their Books. And again, um, it will be an important exhibition on the Gaelic families and their connections with um, Irish manuscripts. So uh, we hope you'll come back for the series of lectures which we'll run in the autumn on that. And there will be a lecture in Heritage Week by our Galway colleague, Dr Elizabeth Fitzpatrick, on the O'Daverins of Cahar MacNaughton, a learned family of Breton lawyers and their scholarly networks. But now to get back to uh, another uh, Galway uh, person, Roderick O'Flaherty, the subject of our talk today. And as I've said, we're very pleased um, that Dr. Sharp has taken time out of his busy schedule to provide this lecture for us today on Roderick O'Flaherty, a learned Gaelic chief. Thank you. And thank you to um, all of you for coming today. Um, the little talk I'll give isn't going to tell you everything that's in the book, um, but it will provide a context for reading the book by looking at something of the personality of the three principal correspondents um, whose letters are there printed and annotated. Um, I'll talk about three men. They belong to three different generations. They speak three different languages. They represent three different cultures. And in the process, I'll talk about three different books. Three in deference to the principle of triads used for ease of memory expert on triads in the front row, I see. Books were very important to our author, Rory O'Flaherty. 
And I'm very grateful to Siobhan Fitzpatrick here and the Library of the Academy for mounting this exhibition of books. Um, some of them belong to O'Flaherty, some of them are written by him, some of them used by him, and some illustrate uh, how we have information about him. Uh, and among them is a real relic, uh, O'Flaherty's copy of John Colgan's book, Trias Thaumaturga, a wonderful book on the lives of St. Patrick, St. Bridget and St. Columba, produced by the Irish Franciscans in Louvain in 1647. The copy in the case there is on loan from the National Library of Ireland. It was certainly in O'Flaherty's hands by 1658. It was still being annotated by him in 1705, and I think it was still in his hands when he died in 1716. Um, at least that's, I think, the date. So it was in his hands for 60 years, despite the fact that during those years uh, he lost his estates uh, progressively in Connacht, and we're told that he lost most of his books. Um, well, he clearly hung on to some of them that he valued. The story I have to tell is built out of some 60 surviving letters. Surviving is an operative word there. O'Flaherty may well have written a lot of letters. And living out there at Park, seven miles west of Galway, um, he wasn't exactly uh, in daily contact with the postal service. A letter would have to be taken to the letter office in Galway from where it would go to Dublin and then be distributed to wherever it was going. Um, and the cost would be fourpence paid by the recipient. O'Flaherty was often very anxious about receiving letters. He didn't really want to pay the fourpence or if it had come from Oxford, as many of these have, it would be a shilling. And if it was two sheets, it would be two shillings. And if it was any more than that, three shillings and fourpence per ounce. Um, the postal charges certainly stacked up. But uh, we know from the letters that O'Flaherty himself was sending off letters to all sorts of people. Um, people he'd never met even. I, Bishop Nicholson of Carlisle was an antiquary who'd come up in the correspondence with uh, Fluid. O'Flaherty writes to him. Um, a book on its way from Oxford to uh, O'Flaherty uh, goes astray, and he writes to Sir Henry Bingham saying, hang on, where's my book? I don't think they had any contact, but there's more correspondence than you might imagine going on. But what we've got um, survives only through really two channels, but it, it may look like three. There are two letters from O'Flaherty to William Mullinex, Molyneux, as you may call him now, um, a learned Dublin lawyer in the 1680s and 90s, with whom O'Flaherty, we are told, had a long correspondence. But that correspondence has gone. The correspondence with Edward Fluid survives because Fluid, keeper of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, kept pretty well all of his in letters. And the Ashmolean Museum has 1,700 letters to Fluid. Uh, um, I work across the road, so that's why this was a, 
a convenient subject for me to get interested in. The letters to Samuel Mullinex, who's the son of William, survive not as original letters, but because Samuel copied the letters he wrote, the letters he received during the year 1708-1709. And that letter book survives by a rather devious route in the Southampton City Record Office. Um, it passed from Samuel to his widow, to his widow's second husband, and then to the sons of her second husband's housemaid, um, who, one of whom lived in Hampshire and gave them to the city of Southampton. Um, writing to William Mullinex, to Edward Fluid particularly, and to a lesser degree to Samuel, for reasons I'll make clear. The correspondence isn't intimate personal letters. Um, it's letters between colleagues in learning. So it's not a case of he's um, telling news or voicing opinions. A lot of the correspondence is about books and about things they're doing with books. And one of the things that they provide that I think is really quite extraordinary is the insight into the cooperation that was going on between O'Flaherty, west of Galway, and Llwyd in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford um, over the writing and publication of the first Irish to English dictionary, which was compiled by Llwyd, but also over O'Flaherty's own research interests, uh, which I will explain uh, in a moment. The letters almost all come from the years between 1700 and 1709, and they convey a story with more personal engagement than immediately meets the eye. Um, and I hope that this little talk will actually uh, leaven the reading of the book. And the letters are often quite, quite hard because I say a lot about books, um, even page references. Uh, but if you see a bigger picture, then you can go at the letters and the notes um, with a sense of the shape um, in the story, the experience. 1700 sees Edward Llwyd touring Ireland to collect material for his work on the languages and antiquities of the Celtic peoples. Um, he wrote to Rory O'Flaherty, um, alerting him to his arrival in Galway and arranging to meet him. Rory's first letter to Llwyd was delivered to him at his intended lodgings in Galway. And the wrapper used for that letter um, was, it, I can tell you it was delivered by hand because to use a wrapper on a letter would double the cost if it was in the postal service. You were charged by number of pieces of paper. Um, the wrapper survives. The letter, of course, survives. Um, the letters were kept in the Ashmolean were gone through in 1830 or 31 and organized by address by the writer, whoever was writing, and alphabetized. And at that stage, any letter that had come with a wrapper on which there was no, um, no letter content was separated. And the wrappers, instead of being thrown away, 
were bound up in a separate guard book of wrappers. And I went through that looking for letters addressed to Llywyd when he was on his tour of Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Cornwall, Brittany. Because it might, those addresses might tell me staging points in the tour. And if there was a postmark, then I'd get a date for when he was in a particular place. Well, going through those wrappers, I was delighted to find a wrapper addressed in O'Flaherty's hand to Llywyd in Galway. And the wrapper had then been used for jottings. 14 points are written out in English and four more in Welsh. And it's pretty clear that these are topics that Llywyd wanted to discuss with O'Flaherty when they met. Literally, the back of the envelope. Now, when they met in June or July of 1700, O'Flaherty was 70. Llywyd was 40 or possibly 41. Um, O'Flaherty descended from eight centuries of Gaelic chiefs occupied the big house at Park. He'd been displaced from Moycullen Castle in Cromwell's time and had lived since 1657 at Park, um, apart from a brief period, um, the beginning of William III's time when he went back to Moycullen before King William's troops got into Connaught. They didn't, they didn't really cross the Shannon until 1695 or 96. O'Flaherty managed a few years back in the castle. But mostly he's living in a house 60 feet long at Park, the principal house with various outbuildings, but windowless and no doubt very smoky. His lands had by this stage mostly gone. I don't know how much he had left, but he, does, he actually refers to having a landlord, um, someone I haven't been able to identify. But he still maintained himself without any uh, manual labour. He didn't look after his own land. So one wonders how many chiefly trappings remained to him by seven, 1700. Uh, was the house still full of family retainers and wolfhounds? We don't know. Uh, did his dress still show him as a chief? Or did he dress like anyone else? Fluid was the illegitimate son of minor Welsh gentry, um, brought up as a plantsman, really. He was an expert on gardens and crops. Um, in Powys, in his 20s, he'd um, gone to Oxford and moved from cultivating plants to becoming a scientific botanist. And he expanded his interest to fossil ferns, to fossils more generally, to seashells, but also to antiquities and particularly to languages. And Fluid is now best known as the man who demonstrated by persuasive reasoning the relationship between Welsh and Irish, uh, the division between the Q-Celtic and P-Celtic languages. Um, and he was able to group Welsh, Breton, Cornish as P-Celtic, Irish, Scottish, Gaelic as Q-Celtic and tucked away in a a passage written in Welsh in his book, Archaeologia Britannica, is an argument that Pictish was also a Celtic language. He thought Pictish was a kind of hybrid of Welsh and, um, and Irish. And he thought that partly because he was looking at place names in Scotland and partly because he made a mistake. 
in the interpretation of a gloss. But um, 300 years on, uh, people now largely agree with him, but in the last 100 years, any number of different views have been entertained about Pictish. So um, Fluid is a serious linguist, but with a wide background in, um, in other things. We don't really know what he looked like. There's only one picture of him. It's a sketch in the initial letter of an entry in the Benefactor's book in the Bodleian, and it shows him in a full-bottomed wig. Well, I can hardly imagine that he carried a full-bottomed wig in his baggage as he was travelling around the west of Ireland, <coughs> where he wouldn't have had much occasion to wear it. Fluid, of course, is a Welsh speaker, and he, he travelled with a small team of three assistants, 18, 19, 20 years old, all of them Welsh speakers. And the jottings they kept on tour are often in Welsh, and they record Irish in Welsh spelling. But when he met O'Flaherty, I think we can probably assume that they spoke English. The alternative would have been Latin, because they were both of them well-educated in Latin. Now, we don't really know what Seward made of their meeting. He was perhaps not greatly impressed in that he wrote letters to several friends rather moaning that the great O'Flaherty proved unable to read the old Irish manuscript that he had presented him with and wanted explained. The manuscript survives in Edinburgh. Um, it's not that old. It's a late 14th century or early 15th century manuscript um, from County Sligo. The text in question that they were looking at, Tikosga Cormic, um, is 9th century. Um, it would not be straightforward for O'Flaherty to interpret it. But we do know that O'Flaherty read in a number of manuscripts of that date. Um, one of them is in the, um, uh, the strong exhibition case in the library, the Book of Lecan, or the Great Book of Lecan from the late 14th century. And it's open at a page where you can see O'Flaherty has written down the blank space between the two columns of the manuscript. He's written in Latin, but what he's done there is explain in Latin information contained in the last two or three quatrains of the Irish poem on that page. Uh, the poem is the metrical Banchanicus, and um, the last quatrains say who wrote it, where, when, on what day of the week, and all of that is put into Latin. Um, in the, we don't really encourage people to write in manuscripts in this way, but one does meet O'Flaherty's hand in a number of uh, manuscripts. The, the Book of Lecan is the one he worked most on, but he was able also to work his way through uh, the Book of Ivania, which belonged to the um, Earl of Clanricard. Uh, Book of Lecan was actually in Trinity when O'Flaherty used it. And he also wrote in the Book of Durrow. I'm afraid, afraid we don't have the Book of Durrow on loan. Um, what he wrote in the Book of Durrow was actually quite important. It's not scribbles. It's carefully laid out, and he transcribes the inscriptions on the silver kuvdach in which the manuscript was kept. Um, James II's troops um, were quartered in Trinity in 1688-89, and it looks as though one of them made off with the silver kuvdach, which has not been seen since 1689, and so O'Flaherty's transcription of the inscriptions is actually very important. 
Um, so we get, we, they have met in Galway in 1700. Correspondence didn't begin immediately, but in 1702, there is an exchange of letters. There have been one or two earlier ones from O'Flaherty, but as far as I can tell, they didn't arrive in Oxford. Uh, Fluid kept his letters, he wouldn't have got rid of those. Brief exchange in 1702, and then 1704, a more substantial correspondence begins. And what drove the correspondence was Fluid's desire that his Irish-English dictionary should be read by an educated, literate native speaker of Irish. And in 1704, he wasn't doing very well at finding one. Dr. Thomas Mullinex, brother of William Mullinex, with whom he'd corresponded, had recommended O'Flaherty as a possibility, or at least said, you know, he, can, he can read and write, um, and he knows his Irish, so he can help you. Um, uh, Mullinex did rather say, don't trust what he tells you about Irish antiquities, um, that he's spent too much time in fables rather than the real history. Well, that's a judgment. Mullinex also organised for Fluid to borrow from Archbishop Marsh a Latin to Irish dictionary. Um, and Fluid's assistants reshaped that, copying out the entries and reversing them as they went on a very, very large sheet of well, several sheets of paper glued together in the Library at Trinity, um, ruled in 27 columns. And it was just used as an aid to alphabetization. He hadn't quite got onto using slips. Um, the dictionary was being printed in Oxford, and the printer would set up a sheet, uh, uh, yes, a sheet. So he needs two forms of type to print the two sides of the sheet, which will then fold, and you have four pages to a sheet. Um, once a sheet was set up on Monday, let's say, proofread on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they work off 500 copies and they break up the type, ready to start another sheet the next week. So proofreading had to be done on the spot. We actually have a couple of proof sheets. But once it's been worked off and the type broken up, you can't make further alterations. So the sheets that were sent to Galway are not proofs. They are the finished sheets and something like 27 sheets of the dictionary made the journey by various means of post, some with the post office, some carried in the, by the post office on the authority of named individuals who had the privilege of free carriage. Um, they arrive, the first 10 sheets, O'Flaherty writes his comments out on small sheets of paper, and they survive with Lewitt's correspondence. But eventually he starts writing on the sheets, and amazingly, having used those comments in an appendix to the dictionary, Fluid kept them. And despite the fact that many of his papers uh, suffered uh, major mishaps, his, his Welsh manuscripts don't survive at all. They were destroyed in two different fires. His Irish manuscripts survive because the grandson of the person who bought them was persuaded by Edmund Burke to give them to Trinity. These by now throwaway sheets survive. And there are copies of them in one of the cases over there. Um, and Siobhan has got out a couple of copies of Fluid's uh, book to put next to 
the sheets. Um, and just extraordinary that they survive. And here we have you know, an, an educated native speaker writing about words in the context of a dictionary. As far as I know, these notes have never been used by Irish lexicographers. What Ruri wanted in return was Llewyd's help to publish a book of his own entitled Ojidja Vindicated. And here I go back and fill in some of the backstory. Ruri had become a very learned man. We don't know anything about his education. It was probably not in Galway. As heir to lands, he'd have been supposedly brought up in a Protestant household and sent to an English school somewhere in Ireland. Uh, but he was well-educated. He wrote Latin with great ease, and he enjoyed composing Latin verse. By the 1660s, when he's in his 30s, he was in the circle of Sir James Ware, a very learned antiquary in Dublin, also in that circle was Dualtak Macirvishi, the last of the really uh, seriously informed tradition bearers, a, a member of the learned class with a major collection of his own manuscripts and who compiled important work of his own. Macirvishi's work is all in Irish. James Ware would publish in Latin or in English. And from that community, there are manuscripts that survive with O'Flaherty's handwriting in the margins. Um, during those years, or perhaps soon after, I think in the 1670s, he was writing his own book, Ojidja, um, an immensely learned and difficult work constructed from annals, genealogies, um, chronological poetry, historical poetry. Um, the book in which he read his historical poems is in the case there. It's a manuscript made by Michal O'Clary in 1627-28 that fell into O'Flaherty's hands in the 1650s in Galway and remained in his hands, I think, until his death. Um, finished in 1675, Ojidja met with the approval of a number of Protestant scholars in Dublin, but there was no progress to publication. Um, in 1682-34, he established contact with William Mullinex, and for Mullinex wrote a description of his territory, Ir Connacht, um, the book is, is called, about the barony of Moycullen, for um, a natural history of Ireland to accompany an atlas that was going to be printed in London. The atlas uh, was never completed. Three volumes were produced covering Greenland, Russia, Poland. Um, but the stationer who was producing it, Moses Pitt, went bankrupt. And the chapters that Mullinex had commissioned in Ireland survive among his papers, including the autograph of O'Flaherty's account of West Connacht. Well, Mullinex helped him get Ojidja printed and published in London in 1684-1685. Um, the Irish quotations are printed in Irish using an Irish font newly cast in 1681 for the printing of the Old Testament in Irish. Um, it appeared with a dedication to James, Duke of York, who, while the book was in press, became King James II. And unfortunately, the book fell into the hands of a Scottish lawyer who had different views on the remote antiquity of the Stuart dynasty. 
Sir George Mackenzie of Rosoch, Lord Advocate of Scotland, didn't think much of O'Flaherty's Irish sources, and O'Flaherty had a similar opinion of Mackenzie's. But Mackenzie made a rather slighting remark about O'Flaherty's book in the preface to his own, which was dedicated to the king. So O'Flaherty felt that he had been disparaged before the very throne, and at that date, the Catholic throne. So he went home and wrote Ojidja Vindicated and spent the rest of his life trying to, trying to find a publisher. Well, Fluid didn't get it um, published. Um, he, O'Flaherty wrote out the book, sent it to Fluid. Fluid took advice from a couple of readers. They were favorable. He sent the readers' reports to O'Flaherty, who copied them out. It's a very strange glimpse of a, a book world that we don't normally imagine being able to see. But publication didn't progress. With great difficulty, O'Flaherty got the transcript back from Oxford. And then in 1708, he suddenly got a letter from Samuel Mullinex, son of his now long-dead friend, William. Samuel is 19, student at Trinity, rich, knows nothing about the West, but has been going through his father's papers, finds these letters from O'Flaherty, contacts O'Flaherty, and the correspondence has something about the natural history of Ireland, but mostly O'Flaherty steers it towards getting Ojidja vindicated into print. Now, young Samuel was no Jacobite, and he was having nothing to do with the preface to James II. The manuscript actually survives in Southampton, and the preface to James II is torn out. O'Flaherty wrote a new one addressed to the, the young fourth Earl of um, Antrim. Um, progress actually happens. Um, Dublin stationers provide quotations for getting the thing printed, how much subscribers would have to pay, how many copies have to be sold. But then a different kind of misfortune strikes. Samuel takes it into his head to go and see O'Flaherty. He doesn't tell him he's coming. The family are having a holiday in County Roscommon, and he travels over to Kosharigia and arrives unannounced. And he's pretty shocked by what he finds. The old man, who lives very old in a miserable condition at Park. I expected to have seen here some old Irish manuscripts, but his ill fortune has stripped him of these as well as his other goods, so that he has nothing now left but some few of his own writing and a few old rummish books of history printed. Well, it's not necessarily unsympathetic, but meeting O'Flaherty seems to have been a shock. Mullinex drops the correspondence completely. He writes instead to Fluid, and several letters pass to and fro between young Mullinex and Fluid in April, May, June, of 1709. Then Fluid dies unexpectedly. O'Flaherty is still writing letters, and three letters go unanswered. So the correspondence comes to an end. Um, one can track a little bit of what happened to him um, after the correspondence ended, but I think it, it is a strange thing to, to think of um, this correspondence between the decayed Gaelic chief, uh, the Welsh botanist in Oxford, 
and the young member of uh, Dublin upper-class English-speaking society, a correspondence sandwiched between what was clearly a sympathetic meeting the Welshman in Galway in 1700 and what looks like a rather more traumatic meeting between the 19-year-old Samuel and the by then 79-year-old Rory in 1709. Rory lived on till 1716 and in the last case um, there's the only manuscript copy we have of a Latin poem written by Sean O'Gara from uh, County Sligo um, in memory of uh, O'Flaherty and there's a line in it in which all of the capital, all of the letters that have a value as Roman numerals, so I, V, X, L, M, uh, D, M, are in caps. And if you add together those capital letters as Roman numerals, you get the date of his death, which is 1716. Um, I think I trust that information over what Walter Harris has in his edition of James Ware's Irish Writers, which is the book next to it. Uh, but I'm being signalled uh, that my time is up, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you.